I'm most interested in is how do we create the intelligent Plinko machine. So if you watch Prices Right as much as I did going through university, you know, the Plinko machine is you put the little token in at the top and it goes rattles around the bottom and it ends up on a product line down at the bottom, right? So my vision is, is that token represents a piece of marketing dollars, right? So that is a marketing spend that you put in the top. And if we got the system dialed correctly, we can predict at the bottom the type of product we sell, who we sell it to, what type of customer acquires it, and that we have operational processes to make sure they renew over and over and over. Hi, friends. Welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. That was Philip Edgel. Philip's the Chief Revenue Officer at Revenue.io. And in our conversation today, among many other topics, we talk about the biggest challenges facing a new CRO as they take over a new organization. We talk about the things that they need to prioritize when they are taking on this responsibility. We then dig into the areas that sales leaders typically overlook when preparing for revenue growth. We also talk about the trade-offs that sales organizations and, by extension, sales leadership make in focusing on efficiency versus effectiveness. In other words, sort of on deal flow versus win rate. And we get into the problems that the growth with all cost mentality causes for companies that embrace it. So we get into all this and much, much more. But before we get to Philip, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast, wherever you listen to it. And if you subscribe, we'd certainly appreciate it if you could leave us a review and give us your feedback about how we're doing. So thank you for that. All right, let's jump into it. Philip, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Pleasure to have you. So tell us a bit about you. Yeah, so maybe a little bit about my background, um, but going all the way back, let's just start from an education perspective. Sorry, say again? So kindergarten, we can start kindergarten. there. Oh, we don't yeah. have to go that far back. All right. Um, so uh, I have a history and political science background. Me too. Um, yep. And uh, leaving, leaving university, desperately wanted to get into the work world and figured out um, wasn't going to be a politician, a teacher, a lawyer, or a librarian. My personality mm. wasn't suited so well for that. So took a graduate program in IT. And at the time, the government was looking to create jobs for uh, graduates, and there was a huge shortage for IT technical people. Um, So I did that program and got into the computer world and started as a uh, technical administrator for uh, Windows NT networks. (laughs) Yeah, but very, very quickly found out. Yeah, I didn't want to do that. Yeah, I didn't. That was, yeah, that was right up there with things I didn't want to do. Spending time by myself in cold rooms um, was not, was not really for me. So I got into the service management side of the business. um, And really, because I didn't have great technical skills, but I had good people skills, I started becoming the first service manager for technical firms. And as I got more and more into that side, figured out I actually really liked to understanding the business that our customers were in, mm-hmm. which quickly led to me connecting with a, a company called Longview Systems in, in Calgary. And really the transition there was um, a, a really amazing owner. Uh, his name is Don Balick, who had this concept around career life plans. And so he'd sit you down and, and say, in a very sort of coveyistic method, he would say, mm-hmm. so, you know, tell me, uh, standing at your retirement party, and I was a 20-something-year-old person, right. he goes, what what experiences would you have to have to have a no-regrets career? 
And I kind of looked at him and said, you know, no that's idea. A, yeah, that's a long time for me. So, so if, uh, if I'm going to stick around here for that long, I better be running this company as an offhanded somewhat, right. you know, very confident in myself. 20 year old says that. Um, and he's like, well, we're going to need people like that around here. So then he mapped it out. Um, and we worked all the way from, from retirement back to the day where I was. And obviously there was big chunks of time and, and he's like, well, we better get started. And so, um, that's where I applied for my MBA and which he funded. And then I went through a progressive set of steps and experiences that led to me transitioning away from the individual contributor consulting side to managing teams, mm-hmm. to opening branches, to running countries, to becoming an executive responsible for service delivery, um, then taking on um, the executive vice president of operations. And over 15 years with that company, I sort of got to do every single job <clears> as we scaled it from a $30 million business to a $400 million business with 1,200 people in three different countries. Um, and so, you know, that's really, you might, from a background standpoint, that really, really shaped the way I think about business, the way I think about scaling, the way I think about culture, which was really the differentiator of that business was really how we felt about each other and our customers and how that right. reflected itself in, in the type of business that we did, which was network-oriented systems integration, outsourcing um, type work. Well, f- explore that a little bit. So sure. how you felt about your customers and each other, how that culture manifests itself. Yeah, so, you know, it's interesting. Um, I haven't worked there for almost a decade now, and I still remember things like the core values, integrity, competence, value, and fun, because they were the only rules that we had as we grew the business. If you could justify the decisions you made against the core values we had, whether they were dealing with internal people or customers, Mm -hmm. you were kind of never wrong, even though we might have bad outcomes. Um, You know, we had a mission statement, and I won't get it exactly right because it was pretty long, but right. it was, you know, to build a team environment where all the employees could have healthy lives and prosperous careers. And it's through that experience that we would add more value to our customers. So it was very focused on <laughs> our team being great. And then we would give value to our customers. And when we think about the type of work that we did, which was very service delivery oriented, mm-hmm. um, whether it was outsourcing or project-based businesses, um, there was never an attempt to prove who was right or wrong. It was all hands on deck to fix the cu- the problems for the customer, regardless right. of how it happened. It doesn't right. that doesn't matter. All that matters is we are responsible for making sure that our customers know that they can phone us when there's a problem and know that we will ask no questions. We will just get it done, and we'll bring all the resources to bear to do it. It was a very um, it was a great place to learn business as a, as a uh, young growing executive that had sort of this ultimate focus on the people inside the business and their experience and mm-hmm. how that translates into the experience for the customer. And you, have you been able to take that sense of purpose and mission onto subsequent roles that you've taken on with exist other organizations? Yeah, it's a, it's a really great question. So when I left uh, Longview after 15 years, I, I went to a company called Hootsuite. Mm-hmm. Um, and great, great experience at Hootsuite. Um, obviously different, but Longview being uh, privately held, uh, Hootsuite having private equity investment, um, stage of the business type of business. You know, one of the things that was really interesting when I transitioned there is having grown up inside of Longview, I thought every company operated that way. I thought <laughs> those were the basic tenets of right. business. Um, right. And what you find out pretty quickly is that's actually not true. 
Yes. Um, and while I learned a whole lot at Hootsuite about the SaaS business, the power of brand, um, and the um, concept of product, what was really missing from my perspective is the feeling of inv- invincibility and support of a team internally mm-hmm. for the benefit of the customer. Right. Um, we were really abstracted, although I was in a, I was in a global operations role for revenue. I was also running a um, territory in Western North America and Latin America as a quota holding. uh, I was holding a spot basically doing two roles. Mm -hmm. Um, And the abstraction between truly understanding and connecting with our customers about their business and how they run it just didn't didn't exist the same way. Um, And it was a somewhat transitory culture in terms of people came and left pretty quickly. Whereas, you know, at Longview, what we were really trying to build was a business where people wanted to stay. Um, And they could see their careers progress over time and they could stay at the company for a long time and have a great experience. Um, A little bit different at Hootsuite. Yeah. And I love that, that phrase you used to make sure I got it right is, is that you basically were a paraphrase. What you're saying is that you felt this feeling of invincibility because of the, this mission of serving the customer. Exactly, and you know, and, it's so, go ahead. Sorry, I interrupted. Well, I mean, it's, there, just, right? it's, yeah. it's such a great way to put it. As right, as as an organization, you're, you are empowered by focusing on the customer. And it's a really interesting. So, when you think about competitive differentiators, if mm-hmm. if we are going to talk about sales for a second, sure. Um, it was a really interesting challenge for us at Longview, different from sort of the product focus and brand focus of, of Hootsuite. So when your competitive differentiator is your people and your culture, or that's what you believe it is, right. it's next to impossible to prove that in a measurable way in a scoring procurement-oriented process when somebody's trying to choose a vendor. Right. They just have to trust you because they don't actually realize the value of that until they've already chosen you. Well, to Where some degree, but, but, but this, is, this is a point I've, I just made recently, and I write about it in my book, is, is my new book, Sell Without Selling Out, is that people experience you, right? You can't verbalize mm-hmm. what you were just talking about, right? You can't, you can't write that down and explain it to a customer, but they feel it. Yeah, and it's a big reason why uh, how we tuned some of our sales processes, especially in the outsourcing space, is we used to have salespeople and executives do all the selling. Mm -hmm. But we also had this role inside of Longview in the organization called the site manager. And that was the ended up being the primary contact, not unlike we would have a customer success manager, Mm -hmm. you know, for a SaaS oriented contract. Um, We used to start bringing the site managers to the sales calls. Uh, in late stage deals for exactly that reason. Mm-hmm. If they could create an emotional connection and relationship and hear the operational person who's going to run their account talk about the things we do and how we do them, it's almost like that old trick you know, of real estate agents bringing you into a house tour and opening a cupboard door and saying, oh, what would you put in this cupboard door, right? It's trying to create that sense of ownership where they are starting to sure. feel and experience, to your point in your your excellent point in the book, to experience what it would be like to work with this person on a daily basis. Yeah, I and mean, to that end, I in similar situations working massive deals, I would bring those folks in even earlier because what I wanted to do is set up a situation where as the potential buyer 
talk to my competitors, they would say, well, how do you do this? Right. Right. Who's your person that's doing this? And if they didn't have it, they were disqualified. Right. So I'd take them out of the running early because they couldn't compete with that. Yeah. It's a great point as we keep pulling this thread, you know, we've gone down this train of like, tell, tell me a little bit about yourself. So if we keep pulling this thread in terms of the question of culture, you know, one of the big things about, um, Hootsuite is, is uh, I was kind of there at, uh, at a challenging time for the business. Uh, it had run its sort of unicorn status, right. was in this intermediary period while I was there. And now it's actually, the company is in, in great shape again. Um, but I sort of decided like that's not really the role or where I wanted to spend my time. And so I took the next step to say, you know, uh, what I learned at Longview was the power of culture, how to scale a business. What I learned at, at Hootsuite was really about the SaaS business and the power mm-hmm. of brand and product. And I thought, okay, let's take those two things. And really what I, I wanted to do was run my own business. Um, didn't have enough confidence to say that I had a good enough idea or the confidence to go raise money myself. So mm-hmm. I moved back into a privately held business um, and worked for a company called Vantage, which was a wholly owned subsidiary of Whitewater West Industries, which an interesting company sitting here in Vancouver. It's the, the largest global manufacturer, designer, and implementer of water slides and water rides around the world. <laughs> I love that. Uh, yeah. Great transition. Yeah. It's a, and try so, product out? You know, I'm not, I surprisingly, despite going into that industry, I really don't like rides. I don't like water slides. <laughs> I don't like roller coasters. I don't like any of those things. Uh, okay. but, but, but what I was really intrigued with was here's this global manufacturing company that had this concept of um, pivoting the industry around technology. Mm-hmm. And what they believed was that there was an opportunity to build a platform around the data collection that would help operators understand how their uh, park is being used, whether a water park, mm-hmm. a wet park, or a dry park. Mm-hmm. And if they could understand how it's being used, they could actually improve the guest experience by either removing friction or increasing experiences. And so right. um, I came across where they had an idea, but no product, um, no real business structure except inside this manufacturing business. And so what I went there to do was um, birth a product, a technology product out of a manufacturing company, which is a was a really, really interesting mm-hmm. challenge. Um, but also tried and use everything I had learned to see if I could build a company that could have this um, focus internally for the value of the external customers, but also everything that I learned about building an, a product and a brand. Could we put all these things together and try and right. build something that could be really compelling and, indus- and interesting in an industry that was actually pretty far behind the adoption of technology uh, yeah. for the most part? Right. Um, so uh, I, I moved over there and we launched the beta product in uh, 2019 um, at a water park down in Florida. Um, and just so happens which, that... Which was? Uh, it was called H2O Live. Um, it's in Kissimmee, just below Disney. Um, and what's, super- the, what's the ride? Uh, so we did the whole Our water experience? park. Yeah, we put, the, we put our platform... Um, the data platform into the whole water park. So we did everything from um, queue control, uh, uh, queue line control lineups Mm -hmm. for water parks. 
we did digital signage. We had a wearable that was could do cashless. Um, we did all the entry processes. So it was a full operational digital platform over top of this water park. Right. Where we were collecting all kinds of data um, around usage of the rides. We also had an app that was tracking people's app. We also had personalization at scale. So you know, we had one water slide that was equipped with transducers so you could go into the app and choose your playlist. And when you went to the top of the ride and got in it, you heard your playlist down the slide. So we had some really, yeah, some really neat, innovative things. Um, and in 2019, there also was the, the, the largest conference of the amusement industries in Orlando. So perfectly timed. Our, our marketing strategy was we were running buses from the conference floor down right. to down to the That's water park great. to give everyone yeah. the experience of of the and we built we built a twenty five million dollar funnel um, in about uh, a week um, and then you know that was in October of twenty nineteen and and oh, everybody time, yeah. yeah everybody knows exactly what started happening in twenty twenty is all everywhere just imagine the amusement industry the cruise industry you know all these people that we were targeting you know those parks successively around the world were closing. Um, obviously there was no money to be spent. Um, so we went into a really challenging time where we had just released our, our beta customer. Uh, we had built a great funnel. We were ready to scale. Um, and the global pandemic hit. Um, so it was, um, luckily we were privately held in this scenario and the owner, uh, Jeff Cheddar, who's a, an amazing entrepreneur, who's actually, um, Ernst and Young's Entrepreneur of the Year for Canada, competing mm-hmm. across the world um, in 2018. Really, really great entrepreneur. He's like, I really believe in this. Figure out how to reduce the cash burn, um, and let's just hold on and, and ride right. it out. Um, which is what we ended up doing, uh, and we learned so much from our beta customer. It's kind of like an interesting process flow where we actually took the opportunity to rewrite a lot of our product um, over over the. COVID time, because what we did is we created something that was a great bundle that we could put in, but we couldn't modularize it, which meant somebody had to bite the whole apple right. instead of just right. taking one bite of the apple and then land in expand, expand mode. Um, so that was a really, you know, that was a great experience of trying to put together a bunch of things. Market timing obviously uh, was not great in, in terms of um, well, us trying control. to get to market. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, what I learned was, um, for me personally, I'm a, a scale leader. I'm not necessarily a pre-product market fit leader. Mm-hmm. Um and the so the time it was taking us to get to market, the the number of deals that we were trying to do, the deal cycles we were in, um, it, that that business at that stage really needed a more engineering focused leader um, than than more of me, who's more of a scale oriented right. leader. Yeah. Um, and so that's what led me to to right. um, meeting Howard and and coming over to Revenue, which um, has been a, a really exciting transition for me. Yeah. So now you're back in SaaS. So. In this case, so you're joining an existing team. So coming in as a revenue leader, what's what's the hardest part about taking over an existing team? You know, has sort of existing ways, set ways of doing it. You know, how do you change the culture? How do you evaluate the people? How do you build trust among the organization? It's a great question, and um, I would I would suggest that uh, from a characteristic standpoint, I have an extreme bias for action. Um, as my wife and family will tell you, um, you know, up early, always, you know, we've always got something on the go. And so the biggest challenge is actually just to take a deep breath and listen. 
Mm -hmm. slow down. You have to remove bias and assumptions from previous experiences and you have to go learn the business internally and externally as you formulate the plan moving forward. You know, the, the, um, being able to have the patience to honor the past on how you arrive somewhere, mm-hmm. ask a lot of questions about why it's like that, what the opportunities for the future are, and meld that with some of your opinions, I think is a really, really important aspect of uh, a senior leader coming into a business. Right. Um, and I think, so my biggest challenge is, you know, I'm still in the this, um, I set myself a 90-day listening tour is what I called it. Um, and I'm still in day 60 and I've got a lot of ideas and I've got a lot of plans and thoughts, but it's critically important that um, I spend the time listening and understanding from both internal people, but also from customers um, exactly what's going on in the business before you try and make these these shifts. Because as the as an individual contributor, you know, the impact of any decision you might make is, is it could be small. As you go to a manager, it might affect a couple more people. But at the level that I've come into this business, it has the decisions that you make and the impact of those has a profound ripple effect um, between customers, internal teams, the team mm-hmm. I lead, plus the teams that are connected, the board and investors, and Howard as the, as the leader. So you really have to be careful about um, the the speed at which you jump and leap to to conclusions mm-hmm. given incomplete information can't wait forever. But I think there's also something to be said for you know patiently trying to wait to collect as much information as you can before you you split off into into new directions or 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 make decisions about how things should be structured or be done. Because mm-hmm. right, there's sort of the twin imperatives anytime a new revenue leader takes over is on one hand to fix something, but on the other hand to prepare yourself for going forward for growth. Right. Yeah, we've used, you... I've used the analogy a few times. Um, you know, the, the, the plane is in flight, so we got to keep it flying. So you sort of think of that, the, mm-hmm. current, the current revenue and customer base, um, all those things. So it's, we, we can't do nothing over this quarter and next quarter. So we need to keep that plane flying. But, it's in, it's incomplete. We still got to be putting the fuselage on and we still got to be tuning, you know, how the engines are working and those types of things as well. So it's this dual imperative that you describe. We can't stop and do nothing while the plane is flying or the plane crashes out of the air. But it doesn't mean that the form that the plane is in or where it's going has to stay exactly the same. Yeah, well, it's an interesting point too because, yeah, that analogy is actually used all the time what I'm talking to, to revenue leaders is that, you know, in SaaS in general, there's this sort of acknowledgement that, you know, there's maybe the models that most companies use to sort of creaking, maybe taking on water, not, uh, not as effective uh, as it should be, certainly in terms of win rates and so on. But when you bring up, okay, well, let's focus on you know, being more effective <clears throat> winning a higher percentage of our deals, everybody defaults so well. It's you know, hard to change this because it's like a plane in flight. <laughs> it's yeah. like, well, sure, but at the rate it's going, it's not going to reach the destination. Right. So and so you- I think that there's, uh, to me, think about the sort of the two levels that I might think on. Like what's an example of just keeping the flying plane, uh, the, the plane flying? 
um, if we're going to continue on with this analogy, we still have to <laughs> acquire new revenue in the quarter. Right. You know, it's not like we can go to the board and say, hey, I came on board and I want to listen for 90 days. So we're stopping all revenue. Mm-hmm. We have existing customers that need to be serviced, mm-hmm. um, you know, and need to be serviced well. But there are things we can do. So, for example, we can crisp up how we're doing account plans, for example, so that we better understand um, how we're pursuing certain types of business and how they're attached to, you know, an account record inside Salesforce. So that's a little tweak that's basically mm-hmm. not affecting how the plane is flying, but it's going to just make us that much more efficient or better. Or on the customer success side, you know, um, working on how are we scoring customers to understand what kinds of things we need to do for them to increase their experience um, because I, my belief would be that experience, uh, a positive experience is what directly leads to expansion. If you yeah. focus on expansion without focusing on experience, you're probably not going to be that successful. So what are the little things around understanding, you know, what is the, what is the um, adoption rate inside a customer? Um, how are they using the tools? How effective, mm-hmm. how can we coach them on better use of the individual tools that we're providing them so that the individual contributors at those companies can become more efficient? These are just little things that are not, um, not material structural changes, but will make the plane fly a little bit more efficiently. And then I think about, you know, the bigger things that these all fold into is that when I think about how we will expand in the future, or how we need to reorganize, we need to look at the structures of these teams. um, And we need to look at, you know, one of the things revenue has done really well over the last two years, is um, that they have increased the number of products that are in their portfolio. So they were a market leading dialer at, at, Mm -hmm. you know, go back three years ago, they added all kinds of great revenue oriented products um, on top of that product. So um, but also that means that we can go up market a little bit more. So when we think about more structural oriented things that may change either the direction that the plane is flying or what the fuselage might look like and to keep the analogy going, mm-hmm. you know, we might look at, okay, so when we think about customer success at the enterprise level or the SMB level, we might think about those two business segments differently in terms of how we engage with them how we are structured internally, how we match up the customer success manager and the account manager might be different in those two business segments. Right. Um, so that would be a more structural item where you want to spend a little bit more time really learning and understanding the customer, trying to match up where we're going as a business with the type of customers we're acquiring and how they use our products. Um, and that's something you might want to just take a little bit more slowly um, and you might want to sort of test um, a little bit more, both with the internal teams and find some people that you trust external to give you their perspective on on how you might restructure those things. So that, that's a great example of where um, that's a much bigger topic, which you'd want right. to probably take a little bit more slowly because you'd really want to get that right. So one area that's your chief revenue officer, right? Correct. So... It's, I mean, what used to be sales leaders always used to be sort of VP of sales, now chief revenue officer. So how do you, how do you view that responsibility differently than if you were a VP of sales? Yeah, great question. So, you know, by way of background, first of all, and I think this is where mine and Howard's, the CEO of Revenue's relationship sort of really pivoted and took off. It's really important to understand my background. 
my background, I've spent more time in operational roles and service delivery roles than I have mm-hmm. actually in the leader of sales roles. Okay. Um, so how I describe myself to Howard when we first met is I'm a, uh, a, a operational expert who happens to have a flair for sales. So if you're looking for somebody who is going to win the 13-week sprint um, by focusing just on acquisition of new business, you're barking up the wrong tree. That's not going to be me. What I'm going to help you do is pull the thread of when we acquire business, how do we keep it? Mm -hmm. So um, I I used, and as we talk more, you'll know, um, I used the plane analogy, so I'll use another analogy because I love them. What I was saying to Howard is, you know, what I'm most interested in is how do we how do we create the intelligent Plinko machine? So if you watch Prices Right as much as I did, um, you know, going through university, um, you know, the Plinko machine is you put the little token in at the top and it goes rattles around the bottom and right. it ends up on a product line down at the bottom, right? Right. So my vision is is that token represents a a piece of marketing dollars, right? So that is a that is a marketing spend that you put in the top. And if we mm-hmm. got the system dialed correctly, we can predict at the bottom the type of product we sell, who we sell it to, what type of customer acquires it, and that we have operational processes to make sure they renew over and over and over because we've matched the exact product to the ideal customer problems that mm-hmm. they've got. And so this matching, it's more, the sales is more of a matching process. If we truly understand that completely than a convincing process um, that, that we've got. So, you know, when I think about the responsibility of a revenue leader, as opposed to a sales leader, what I think about is the responsibility for correctly identifying the types of problems we solve the characteristics of businesses, not verticals, not types of companies, but the characteristics of businesses that require that problem to be solved. Mm-hmm. And we match our products to those characteristics because then we know that we can spend the least amount required to acquire. Mm-hmm. The sales process is relatively uh, quick mm-hmm. and that we can renew them and expand for them over and over and over because it's not a question of trying to now tailor our products to their business processes. We understood that already because we found the right customers to, to uh, acquire our software. So now it's just about how do we expand them and renew them over and over and over. So I think much more broadly about um, how we create and maintain revenue mm-hmm. in at the front end, the most financially responsible way possible. And on the back end, in a way that we know that we're not battling for the renewal because of a mismatch of our capabilities and their needs. It's really about making sure that they're getting value and we've enabled. And that's and that experience is going to lead to expansion. Great. No, great answer. And I was just thinking the reason for the pause was just thinking is like back to what your your answer was, is that what you're describing, and there's yeah, sort of you're talking about, you know, identifying customers and so on is you know, it, what you're talking about really requires this close relationship then with, with marketing. Right? Because marketing was really woven into a lot of what you were talking about there. So yeah, talk about the importance of the relationship between a CRO and a CMO. It's fun. It's fundamental. Um, if you think about um, our first touch point in the market for for us as a business is going to be marketing, 
the, the, the next touch point is some kind of qualification exercise, um, which is, could be SDRs, could be BDRs. It could be, it could be salespeople. It depends on your sales process and your sales design. Um, but the alignment between what marketing is trying to uh, attract or enable or educate in the market and who we want to talk to as a sales organization are intimately linked. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I experienced this directly with, um, and this actually was a big part of Howard and Mind's discussion is I actually asked him, um, at the moment as the revenue leader, I'm not actually responsible for marketing, which in a CRO role, I've seen them be designed both ways, where marketing is actually sure. underneath the CRO right. and marketing is not underneath the CRO. In my in my particular instance, um, marketing is not under my mandate, although mm-hmm. uh, I worked really, really closely with, with William in defining all these things. But I saw a, a really great example of this at, at Hootsuite, where the, the marketing leader and the sales leader were actually... Um, rewarded and metriced um, and therefore bonused on different things. Mm-hmm. And so that caused so much tension between those two organizations sure. because in every, any given quarter, um, you know, marketing would smash their metrics uh, out of the park. Um, and yet sales didn't, didn't ever hit their quota or AR. I shouldn't say ever, but in, right. you know, in this theoretical instance, you know, marketing has an amazing quarter Right, and smashes all these things out of the park to all these metrics, and yet the sales organization didn't hit the ARR target ad. And so, or what you have to ask didn't yourself: the leads. You, well, yeah, or <laughs> from the sales perspective, really, what it is is marketing didn't create enough leads. From the from the marketing perspective, they're looking at sales, going, "You can't close business." Yeah. Fundamentally, though, the value of the SaaS organization is actually measured by ARR. Mm-hmm. So to some degree, you sort of say, well, maybe we shouldn't have spent as much on marketing then. Like if we can only close this much ARR, but we created right. this much opportunity, we actually overspent in marketing. So instead mm-hmm. of rewarding them for for the overspend of creating these leads that, that say maybe was inappropriate or sales can't close or whatever the case may be, um, there was just this incredible misalignment between these two um, because they were being measured on things that weren't actually core value to the business. Um, and that's, you know, that's a big part of the conversation. So when you talk about this relationship between the, the, the sales organizations and the marketing organization and really how I view it, whether this is sort of appropriate or not, I sort of think of it this way, like what I'm responsible for and really good at is once the humans get involved in the sales process mm-hmm. and what I need, I, what I need William to do is really sort of set up the environment for the humans to get involved through the digital means, right? Mm-hmm. So we need to be aligned with what we are good at and what we want to do and sell. And we need to provide that to William so that he can actually set up the pins for us to go close. Um, right. right. So this, the intimate relationship between those two parts of the organization is really important. And what I've enjoyed so far is there is no tension between, you know, the, the revenue organization defined as, you know, the SDR teams, the AE teams, the implementation teams and, right. the, and the customer success teams and marketing. There's no tension whatsoever uh, between those two teams. There's a lot of alignment with what we're trying to achieve. And really mm-hmm. now what we're working on is to get the um, is to get the metrics aligned in terms of we're we're pretty good in the 13 week sprint that we're in in terms of quarters. Mm-hmm. We're 
okay at looking one quarter out um, and we are not so good at looking two and three and four quarters out. And so when I think about the alignment that I need with marketing, um, it's almost too late to some degree to be aligned with marketing in the current quarter. We need to raise our our gaze together and go, we need Q plus one, Q plus two and Q plus three is where our uh, real mental energy is the leaderships of these two organizations need to be spent in terms of alignment. Because once we move into the current 13 week sprint, you know, those pins better be set up already um, for us to actually go close. I'm large. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. Very cool. All right. Well, Philip, well, thank you so much uh, for joining me. So uh, if people want to connect with you and learn more about what you're doing, best way to do that is. Um, you can go to our website, revenue.io. Um, mm-hmm. You can connect with me directly on LinkedIn, LinkedIn, Philip Edgel. Um, any, any, any ways of those uh, avenues are great. Perfect. All right. Well, Philip, we'll do this again. Thank you so much, Andy. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. I am so grateful for your support of the show. And I want to thank my guest, Philip Edgel, for sharing his insights with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. So thank you for your help, and thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone.